Hi, I'm Carla Hayden, Librarian of Congress, and it's a pleasure to be on the great, big, beautiful podcast. standing in front of a, a crowd and you may not be able to speak the language and mm-hmm. the language is music. You're playing two, three hours to this crowd that love the, the same music that you do and it's very rewarding. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think anyone who does what the, the who manages to get a job that they love doing are, are lucky. I wish everyone could, could, mm-hmm. could have that. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast. Also, wherever you catch podcasts from in the apps, we are back with another week of fantastic interviews. Interview, I guess, in this case. How are you doing this week, Jamie? I'm doing awesome. How are you doing, Justin? I am doing fantastic. Now, we have a great, we have an amazing guest today, and we we have him on record saying that he made Will Smith. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that's our clickbait right there. Yes, exactly. Come find out who the guy is who signed Will Smith. Um, but in discussion, we were talking about you've seen Paul Oakenfold many times. You, you oh, mentioned I know for sure twice. I want to say there was a third time in there that I probably don't remember, but for sure I've seen him twice. And so we were talking about that, and then Jamie casually says, well, I saw him at Coachella. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I was like, okay, Jamie, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't just casually drop. You were at Coachella. Yeah, I am a Coachella hipster because I was at the third ever Coachella in 2002. And did you have a man bun at so, that point? I did not have a man bun. I had hair. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, okay. But I think I can legitimately say I was at Coachella before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also now say, yeah, it's not really my scene anymore. Not it's really my scene. Ma- just too many too kids mainstream. and it's too yeah. mainstream. Although the year – so I just looked it up. I, so I'm guilty of still owning my – t-shirt from Coachella 2002 and still wearing it um, because just I'm not going to read the entire lineup but so this was a uh, Coachella was it, 2002 it was a two-day um, thing like it now I think it's like four days spread over two weekends or something so it was two days and the two headliners were Bjork and Oasis um, and just on the other stages like as like smaller type on the uh, t-shirt or the posters or whatever. So the Chemical Brothers, Susie and the Banshees, Sasha and Digweed, Groove Armada, Cake, Jack Johnson, uh, Prodigy, Foo Fighters, The Strokes, Paul Oakenfold, Tiesto, Bell and Sebastian, BT. Um, I'm trying to see the smaller type here, if any of these people made it much bigger. Uh, but I mean, that's a pretty good list right there. Just a small band called the Foo Fighters. Oh, Queens of the Stone Age was there. G-Love and Special Sauce. Yeah. Foo Fighters wasn't even the main headline. They were there on Sunday and they weren't even the headliner. Like Oasis was the headliner, you know? 
And the, what they have like one song, Oasis. <laughs> yeah, I you know, and I think I shouldn't make fun of this. Yeah. Like Sarah loved Oasis. Yeah, she loved. I, that and scene. you know, when they were big, like there were a couple songs that I liked. You know, not I mean, they got played out after a while, but there were a few songs that were good the first you know dozen times you heard them. But <laughs> uh, so yes, I was at Coachella in 2002 before it was cool, and all the kids discovered it. You also mentioned that you saw Paul Oakenfold play in Shanghai when you lived there as well. I so did. You were obviously a fan of him. I was a fan. And so that, I mean, obviously all these things have stories. So I, this was 2000, I, I tried looking in my journal and like, so I mentioned it to him and he says he thought it was, well, the event in the book that we were talking about, he says he thought maybe it was 2004. I think that I saw him in 2005. Um, it was just a small club in Shanghai. I was living there with my now wife um and i knew who he was she had no idea like uh, that kind of music is not her thing but she loves me so she went with me because i bought her a ticket and i said i'm not going to this alone you're coming with me and we went and i remember it was in the middle of winter so it was probably like a january or february it was freezing outside but inside the club, it was it was like a sauna. So there was no no place was comfortable. You were either inside just dripping sweat or you were outside freezing your nads off. And I remember so like there was some, you know, opener DJs. I don't remember how many people were playing that night. Um, obviously, Oakenfold was the um, the headliner and that's what everybody was there for. But I remember it was just getting later and later and later and i don't think that he actually came on stage until like 2 or 2:30 in the morning and by that time my wife wanted to slaughter me she was like i am going home because she had had enough like the music was not her thing and so she was like the pounding beats of like we had been there for like 4 or 5 hours already and he still hadn't shown up and she was like this guy has some nerve who does he think he is <laughs> and to this day i mean that was what 12 years ago to this day she remembers that if i if i mention it to her now she'll be like oh god i remember that night that was awful <laughs> but i had a good time <laughs> well and you know the 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 real djs like the guys that are great don't come on ever until like oh i know and, uh, that's she, the way it she is she wasn't right? gonna listen to that i couldn't say like oh this is normal honey no no yeah <laughs> So Paul Oakenfold has ventured away from, not away from music, but he's taken on a new project, which we're going to talk to him about. Um, he has a new graphic novel coming out. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah. So he's got a new, um, like you just said, graphic novel. It's called The Wonderful World of Perfecto. If you know Paul Oakenfold, you know Perfecto is his label. Like that's his brand um, is Perfecto. That's what he, he's put out a lot of, um, of, 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 of vinyl and CD and music. It's under that, that name. Uh, and so this graphic novel is, it tells his story, basically. It's his career and he's divided. We talk about this in the interview, so I'm not going to repeat too much of it, but it's divided into four parts covering four major turning points of his career. Each part has a different illustrator and he has written basically his memoir in the form of a graphic novel. And it starts from when he was just a kid starting out with a dream all the way up until earlier this year when he played uh, at Everest Base Camp in Nepal, uh, so it really it does cover almost all of his career, and, it, and you get a pretty good sense of where he came from and what was driving him. Um, and I want to say it's for, on sale now. I should probably know that. I'm not sure if it is or not. Um, <laughs> Jamie gets everything well in advance of regular people, so 
yes, I get things in advance sometimes. Not always. But yes, this came out on December 19th. So it's out. It's available. You can order it on Amazon or wherever you get books um, or, or trade or graphic novels. So uh, go grab it. Um, but yeah, we talk about a lot of things. I mean, you know, we talk about the the graphic novel, which is a, a shift for him. Um, we talk about his career and music and and making Will Smith the man that he has he became. It's a great chat. So we're gonna go play it for you right now. Hope you enjoy. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's just a thrill to have you here. Thank you, sir. I guess I had a stuff to start off. Um, we're talking about the graphic novel, so why a graphic novel? How did you land on that format to tell your story now? Um, it started uh, earlier this year when I was at Sundance Film Festival and was approached uh, by a colleague uh, who's in that world, actually. Mm. And he said, have I ever thought about doing a fiction, non-fiction, whatever, um, graphic novel and I'm a fan of of comic and I was like well that sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> so uh, we kind of flushed out the idea that it would be loosely based on four kind of moments in my life um, I wanted to add a lot of colour and humour to it, wanted uh, to try and bring young new cutting edge artists uh, into the play and, and Josh was um you know, he, he knows that world very well, and he hooked me up with some great illustrators, and we flushed out a narrative, a story, and the process took, well, I mean, right up until, you know, till last month, really, when the, when the comic was finished, and I flew to London to do a big uh, promo at Forbidden Planet uh, last Thursday, and now we're, we're, we're up and running. I mean, it's... It's a different world for me. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying it. I'm going to do some shows at Comic Con and uh, doing some signings uh, and and having fun, you know. And and I think for me, it's it's refreshing, really. Yeah. You mentioned the um, the different artists, and so for people who haven't seen the book yet, like you said, it's it's broken into this, these four parts that you know, like you said, cover four different main events in your career. Um, and the styles are really distinct. Um, did you have any hand yeah. in, in choosing the artists? And what was the process like for, for working with them? Yeah, I, 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 I did. I, I tried to, to, to be as involved as, as possible, but in a respectful way. You know, right. I mean, there's no point in hiring an artist and telling him, right, I don't like this, I want that. I, I, I try to do it in a creative way where we had already picked them because of existing works that I'd seen. So the idea was to, to really bring the best out of them in that respect. And, and that was, look, it's a blank piece of canvas. You know, you've read, you've, we've spoke. Get out there and do what you're good at doing. Um, so I think... You know, I have my favourite in, in within those four uh, illustrators um, in terms of how one of them went really crazy. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have seen. Oh yeah, the you're, art, you're talking about part three, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I love that. Yeah, that's my. You know, I mean, I shouldn't say this, but we all have our own little favourites. But yeah, it really, 
he really took the ball and run with it, you know. And, and yeah. look, it starts quite tame um, because I think that was that moment where you're trying to find your way in your life. It was an early moment, and that's kind of where we were in the music industry. As we move on, um, it starts to develop. And part three got was quite crazy in my life at that time. And part four, I end up on Mount Everest and. The illustration there is pretty much clean, and uh, much cleaner than than part three, anyway. Yeah, yeah. His, ta- I'm, I'm sorry, I just, piggybacking off of that. His his take on uh, Hunter S. Thompson just blew me away. That was hilarious. I had to stop and just yeah. stare at those panels because it was so funny. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, I, I think it was important for me to to. Let the, in terms of the artistic rollout of, of the comic, let the guys, let's play to the guy's strength sure. is what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. whatever that strength is, that was why we felt they were right for for those uh, individual parts. Um, and, and, and even the cover, I mean, it, the, the cover was uh, two young illustrators from... Los Angeles, um, and I sat down with them and I invited them to, over to my house and I was like, look, uh, you may not know too much about the electronic world, but they, I, you know, I'm, I'm, my, I'm all about vinyl. That's when I started DJing. So I was like, well, why not put a turntable on the cover and my, my, the back of my head is a piece of vinyl and then it, it develops into how I wear my headphones when I DJ, which is I wear them at the front of of my face. So again, it was a it, it was a take on old and new vinyl, and where I am at the moment in in my uh, DJ and producer career. So the book is also presented in a square format. Was that from the shape of the vinyl as well, or was there yeah. different thinking behind that? The shape okay. of the record. Okay. Yeah. So you know, it was meant to be you know a record sleeve and. There's even a special mix. I wanted to, I wanted to try and give people a bit more, and, and people who are not maybe aware of me or or my world, uh, a little bit more than than just a comic. So there's a special mix that you can download that's only available with the comic uh, of some of the tunes I wrote and produced over the years. Uh, it's very bright and colourful. It sheds light on what's gone on over the many years, and uh, yeah, as you said, it's kind of in that record sleeve kind of uh, square, a little bit shorter than traditional record sleeve, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you've you've played some incredible shows in front of tens of thousands of people, but you know, writing is a very solitary pursuit, you know, I mean, so was that hard for you to sort of look inward and, and sort of sit down and just put the words on the page and, and because you're, yeah. you're so used to something different. Yeah. And, and also, you know, in all honesty, it was, I had a lot of help from Josh, Josh, you know, worked with me on this, um, in terms of flushing out the stories. I mean, you know, I've been very lucky and fortunate with my job to, you know, to travel the world. I never knew I'd see the world through music. I, I've I've just Im- travelled many many places, and which places do you choose? I mean, from playing on the Great Wall of China to in front of the pyramids in Egypt to opening for you two. What, what moments do you choose? So Josh was an expert in this world and was like, look, let's just focus on these moments. 
which are the four moments that that we chose. Yeah, you know, reading. And also, when you're writing comic, you, you which I, again I never realised or never knew. You, you, and, but once you think it through, you, it's it's more the illustration. The illustration mm-hmm. jumps out at you, um, and that's what I wanted. Being the the world that I live in, and the words, the story, the narrative would really complement what you see. That's what. I wanted it to, to come across as. Yeah. You know, as I was reading, one thing that really came across came across so clear was um, how supportive your parents were of your of your music and your dreams, even from the very beginning. Um, and and I, I think that was beautiful that you you made such an effort to to include that in all four parts and in, in the role that they played. Yeah. Um, that couldn't have been easy for them, though. I mean, because, you know, especially when you were starting out, you were trying to do something that had never really been done, and you were trying to forge your own path. Um, did you get That's the right. Did you get the sense from them that there was, there was, I mean, was it just, was it just that they were, they were your parents and they were going to support you no matter what? Or did, was there no, some hesitation? No, I think, I, I think that's, it's a great question because um, it's only, as as you grow older in life that you really realize that i mean i'm as a kid i'm probably like everyone else you have your arguments your disagreements with your mum and dad and you know they they wanted me to go down a different kind of path but my father being a musician he understood that you know i was literally following in his footsteps with yeah. music and i suppose it's quite difficult for my father to go well don't do that you know, do this, but uh, they understood. They they understood that it was a dream. I mean, it was something that I had a, a true passion for, and they allowed me to to find my feet as a young as a young as a boy as a young man. Yeah. And the work ethic that my parents instilled in in me, you know, as a working class guy from South London, was I think was important, and uh, hopefully. You know, it kind of sh- that story comes out within the comic. Yeah, absolutely, it does. Um, I-, I have to ask because it's it's one page in the book, um, but it was when you were in China, uh, and and yep. and you said that there was a problem with the revoked visas, and you were you know quote unquote kicked out of the country. I have to ask when that was and what the story was. Well, we we didn't actually get kicked out of the country, but there was a miss. I, I'm a dual citizen, uh-huh. um, meaning uh, of the of the United Kingdom and the uh, U.S. And I went in on one passport and went out, came out on another. Yeah. Um, and in and in China, <laughs> when you're waving the American flag, they're <laughs> they're uh, not as welcoming as they are when you've got the uh, the the British passport. So. Uh, you know, it was a it was a very hairy situation because you're sitting in rooms in airports and no one's speaking or people are speaking very little English, and you just don't know what was going on. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know, and you, you you learn from that. To be honest with you, you make sure you just go in on one passport <laughs> and out on, on the same one. Yeah, you don't so mess ar- you don't mess around a- with things like that. <laughs> No, exactly. But, you know, in in, uh, in the confusion, because when I do tour, I don't go to one country. You know, I, I've done eight countries in Asia on that tour. And, uh, you know, sometimes yeah. you forget which passport you're going in on. <laughs> because some 
passports work, believe it or not, I mean, if you're going in, into uh, Thailand or, or Malaysia, the British passport, Singapore, you don't need visas. Right. So you don't have to spend months at immigration trying to get paperwork. So that's kind of how you get... It's a trick of the trade in the music business. That's how you get around... Uh, Doing visas and all these things. Maybe I shouldn't be saying. That. <laughs> <laughs> there the, you go. The, you learn something every day, yeah. <laughs> the reason I I ask is because was that was that around two thousand five? Do you remember? I think a year earlier, four three two thousand three four. All right, because if it was. I, I can't remember if it's 2004 or five because I saw you in Shanghai on that tour then because it was it stuck out to yeah. me in the story oh, yeah. because yeah I was living there at the time and you played a small club there and I made sure that I was yeah. there so. <laughs> well, I first went to believe it or not played in Shanghai in a theater called New York, New York, mm -hmm. 1999 for Radio One, and. Fell in love with that city and seen that city grow and grow and grow. I mean, yeah. you know, there was nothing the other side of the Bund. No, oh, I know. Uh, originally, you know, I mean, now yeah, I don't know when the last time you was there. But I, I was just what a there spectacular this spectacular view. I was just there this past summer, and it's changed enormously since when I lived there. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yep, crazy. Yep. I mean that 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 you know, I, I used to stay at a hotel the other side of the Bund. Uh, and now that that side's, I mean, it, it's, it's incredible yeah. what's gone on there in terms of <laughs> growth and yeah. architecture buildings that they've they've built over many years. It's unreal. Every time I get I go, it's like there's a new world's tallest building there, or they're building a new one. It's unreal. Yeah. <laughs> so in yeah, in one reading of my up... favorite cities in the world, Shanghai. Yeah. No, I loved it. I loved it. It was a great place <laughs> to call home. So in reading up a bit. Or reading up about your early career, we were surprised to learn that you signed DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince to their first label. So, how, like, how did you first hear about them? Did you, did you get slipped a disc in the mail, or I guess back then it would have yeah, been yeah, no. So, so, so yeah. So, just to clarify that, um, so I was working for a record company in Great Britain called Champion Records. Uh, the record appeared as a small on a small imprint out of Philadelphia. Uh, and I signed it. That's right. It was Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Girls ain't nothing but trouble. Yeah. Uh, who knew that the Fresh Prince would go on to be Will Smith and be the biggest actor in the world? No one. But, uh, so I signed that record to Champion Records. We did a remix of it, uh, one of my first remixes, because the sample that they used was from a, a U.S. 60s, I want to say 60s, uh, maybe late, early 70s TV program. Yeah, it was I Dream of Genie. Uh, I Dream of Genie, yeah. do you know that? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, and the reason why I'm saying it is because the sample was in there a couple of times and I put the sample in on the chorus, every chorus. Point being, it became a hit and then they came to the UK and the wow. record blew up and then they kind of, it went, ended up going back to America and became popular in America. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, that was my first venture into remixing and one of the first uh, artists or artists that I signed. So Will Smith owes it all to you. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> yeah, if it wasn't because of me, Will Smith would have never happened. That's yeah. right, own it, yeah, own it. You should totally own that because it's all you. <laughs> uh, no, I would never say that. Uh, I, <laughs> no. 
<laughs> so, I mean, we've talked, we've mentioned, we've alluded to this. You have been playing music for, what, 30 years, something like that? More, yeah, 30 well, years. Well, more than 25. I'm curious if your audience has more or less stayed a consistent age over that time or whether they've aged you know, with you over that over those 30 years. Because if you watch concert footage, like if you go onto YouTube and just watch concert footage, it doesn't matter how old the footage is, what year the performance was, the audience always seems young and happy. And it's just, I'm, I'm sure yeah. you've got fans that span, you know, all ages. But what's it like for you as you look down from the stage and see that? You see, you know, new kids who are just discovering you dancing right along people who have been there for 30 years. Yeah, and, and that's and that's exactly what it is, um, and I'm very fortunate and very lucky that you know, 30 years on, that I'm still coming across me, uh, still people coming across my uh, my new people are coming across my music, and some of my existing fans are you know still there and enjoying the progress and 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 what I you know what I'm what I'm doing. I mean. Um, that's, I suppose, the wonderful thing about playing festivals and clubs, um, you know, with music that it, it can be all ages. Yeah. Have you have you ever thought that just man, I'm just get, I'm getting too old for this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you are. <laughs> once you once you think that, then it's out. You're out of the game, right? Excuse me. I said, once you think that, once you think that you're too old for this, yeah. then uh, it's just you might as well pack it in. You can't think that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's society puts an age on you. I mean, who, who's to say that you can't do anything at whatever age you you, you want to be? Yeah. You know, or whatever age you are. Yeah. Put it that way. Exactly. Um, you know, you you mentioned playing in front of the pyramids on the Great Wall at Everest. We're going to talk about Everest again in a, in a few minutes, but. Um, I have to imagine you've performed pretty much everywhere. Um, do you happen to know how many countries that you've played in? Uh, I don't off the top of my head, but I know it's a tremendous amount. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, I, I haven't played in Central Africa, uh, but I've played near enough everywhere else. I haven't played in Pakistan because yeah. uh, it's too dangerous. Uh, like the obvious places like Afghanistan and places, no, of course not. Yeah. Uh, but I've played in the Middle East, about five countries in the Middle East, all over Europe. All I've played at all the continents, really. Yeah. Uh, right up to Iceland. Um, you know, as far down as Ashwaya, which is the last um, town before you get to the Antarctica in Argentina. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, 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 you know, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm, I would never, never thought I'd see the world through music. I know how lucky I am, and, and I really enjoy it. I love traveling. I'm, it takes a certain kind of person. Uh, I realize that, and, you know, and, and my colleagues, we've often joked about this, because you're in a different country, a different city, near enough every day, playing up, DJing all night, you're playing all night, you grab sleep, you try and be as healthy as possible, and you're on a plane again. And it take, you know, as I said, it takes a certain kind of person who can, who wants to do that. Uh, but the reward comes 
when you're standing in front of a, a crowd and you may not be able to speak the language and mm-hmm. the language is music. You're playing two, three hours to this crowd that love the, the same music that you do and it's very rewarding. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think anyone who does what the, the who manages to get a job that they love doing are, are lucky. I wish everyone could could mm-hmm. could have that moment. Yeah. So, so is, there, is there a difference in the crowds around the world? Uh, anything that you've noticed or do you have like a favorite country to play in or a favorite venue? Um, yeah, I think, I think we all have favorite countries and favorite, you know, venues in terms of a venue. It's, it's the quality of the sound system set up in the DJ booth, the crowd. They're the three things that are really important for me, uh, in terms of countries. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, uh, my favorite city and country in the world is Argentina is Buenos Aires. I love the culture. Uh, I love the, the, the passion, um, that comes with, with everything they do. The food's great. You know, I could, Mm -hmm. I could go on and on, uh, you know, and and for that reason, that becomes you know one of my my favourite places, Tokyo, because it really is the future. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, I'm a big foodie. I studied food, so I always try and go eat local foods when in season, wherever I am. The promoter will take me to um, to the restaurants. So, you know, I might do some research prior to going to that city that country and want to go and see things i'm not the kind of dj stays in the hotel room just eats Mm -hmm. uh room service and then goes to the gig i actually really want to get out and get involved so i sometimes even take a couple of days in that city just to hang yeah is there any place that you won't go back to at least that you'll admit (laughs) (laughs) there's places that you've that you've that I've been to many, many times yeah. um, that I'm that I wouldn't say I wouldn't go back to, but I'd say you know there's only so many times you can go to the same place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I I, I I I mean, look, everything start changes and and changes upon us every day. But you know, there's only so much I can do, and the older you become, the the harder it is on you physically on your body. So. I'm at a stage in my life where, you know, I'm I'm very lucky where I can choose where I want to go. And and, and I, like, I also like staying at home. I mean, you know, it's nice to have a weekend <laughs> off. I haven't had a weekend off in 30 years. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice to just stay at home and watch football and go, man, you know, I like this. Let's go, let's go out with my friends. So, you know... The, da- the 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 downside is you're just always away. Yeah. You're never around to 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 for friends and family, and you miss things that you you know. And because you're you're booked six months in advance, so I know already where I'm going to be May of next year. Yeah. So suddenly you, you know, you, and you don't want to let people down. So you, you you're organised well in advance in in the uh, in the DJ world. Yeah. So you, we've mentioned Everest a couple times. Uh, talk to me about that. Talk, it's uh, how did that come about, and was that something that you had always sort of dreamed of doing, or did it just develop over time? No, that was that was. Uh, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, <laughs> that was a situation that a friend of mine came to me a few years ago and said, "Would you ever consider doing this?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah," you know, and then suddenly it came upon me where I realized that, 
You know, I've I've never hiked in my life. I've never slept in a sleep bag. Uh, I agreed to do it, and then suddenly I, it it really dawned on me that I got to get super fit because suddenly I started to panic and thought, well, I don't know if I can do it. It was one of the first things I'd ever kind of questioned myself. So I stopped drinking for several months. I uh, trained two to three hours a day. I I I, I went overboard because uh, I didn't want to let anyone down. Because yeah. the idea was that we, we, if I could pull it off DJing at base camp, we would raise money for four charities. Two in Nepal, Kathmandu, Nepal, which were children's charities, and two in London, where I was born and come from, because they've slashed all the music budgets for kids mm-hmm. and schools. Yeah. So I didn't make a big deal of it because I thought if I start telling people I'm going to do it and I can't and I don't pull it off, um, it would be the wrong thing to do. So I got my head down. I worked very, very hard on preparation, preparing for it. We didn't even know if the equipment was going to work at that altitude. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, and and lucky it did. We shot a VR. We shot it in VR, virtual reality. We've shot. We've made a documentary. It's coming out. Uh, next year, and hopefully we can raise more money for the uh, for the four charities. So we'll see. How, how did you handle it physically? Because I was reading the diary that you posted on your website about it, and one of the very first things you said was what you just said now, is that you had never hiked before. And that seems kind of like a no. sink or swim way to find out if you can hike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's the, in terms of preparation, I, I was hiking two, three miles a day, you yeah. know, and I was like, wow, man, this is pretty intense and then but suddenly you're waking up uh at five six in the we wake up when the sun comes up that's right. that's you get into mm-hmm. that rhythm because you, when the sun goes down it's pitch black there's nothing to do so you hike five to several hours seven hours a day um and I mean, you shouldn't really be up there. The, every element's against you. You yeah. can't breathe when it when the sun's shining. It's, it's super intense. The wind is in your face, and it's freezing cold. Yeah. I mean, it was minus sixteen, and I'm sleeping in the tent. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was difficult. But the big the, the secret to it is being mentally prepared. That's mm-hmm. the guy who we hired as our so-called tour manager to get us through this. He climbed to the summit 12 times. Wow. He was Britain's biggest, uh, 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 number one mountain climber. He was most well-known, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and I sat with him and, you know, spoke to him about it. And, you know, he was like, it's it's within us all. And, and honestly, coming away from it, done it, I would, I'd honestly say any anyone out there can do it. I mean, you know, there's older people than me have, have done it. Um, you just got to be fit, really fit, and and we can all get fit and, and mentally prepared to go where maybe you've never been before, uh, and and you can do it. Yeah. Had you been to Kathmandu before? No, yeah. I've never been to Kathmandu. Uh, I've never been to Nepal. I mean, I've been in that area. Yeah. Obviously, India, which yeah. is adjacent to the country, but no. Yeah. Um, it's and an, you see the poverty there. I mean, oh, it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, so I've, have you guys been there? I've been there, yes. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, an, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, 
I was up in Tibet and we crossed the border and went down to Nepal. So I was on the Tibetan side. I didn't go all the way up to base camp, but I was at like as close as you could get to base camp on on of Everest without actually hiking up to it. So I saw the mountain, yeah. but I was on the on the Tibetan so side. Was, so, yeah, and and that's that's really that's the real interesting side because you can drive yeah. on that side, um, obviously cause in, in Tibet, but the other side is the hike. But yeah. being at Tibet and China, uh, it's really, really difficult to get a visa because yep. we look, we actually looked at should we go, uh, you know, from that direction because I w- also wanted a plane to bet um, and still do, yeah. actually. Uh, and could we, again, because it's, you have to get permits. I mean, to go to base camp, only the climbers are allowed to stay there. The the, the hikers can only go there for four to five hours mm-hmm. during the day, and then they have to leave. So for us to, you know, we spent two and a half years preparing this, getting the right paperwork, making sure that there was a lot of respect for the climbers, for the locals, uh, it wasn't a rave, it wasn't a party, it was an event to raise money for charities. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, we, it was important from my point of view to show that respect to the climbers. And, you know, since I'd done it, 10 people have died up there. It's yeah. really dangerous. Yeah, every season uh, and, is crazy. And all that plays into into kind of your preparation. You know, do I really need to do this? Why am I mm-hmm. doing this? These kind of moments that you have because of how dangerous it is and how you can die up there. Mm-hmm. The, your website says that this was a, a first, the first of a series of, of concert adventures. Are you planning others or is it, are they just sort of, you know, hopeful? Yeah, I, 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 um, I'm always trying to do something. I think through music, you know, where I am and in my moment in my career, I've, you know, I've, we, what we did when we went to Kathmandu, we found a local DJ school, and mm. um, and you'll be able to see this in the documentary. I take a local DJ with me, and as we're going on this journey, we go to monasteries and record local instruments, and from it we make a record, and, and that record, the money that raises, goes towards these charities. So the idea was is to take that idea and go to other locations through music where we would get access to and and do these special events that uh you know that people can be a part of i love that idea i absolutely love it when, when does that documentary come out uh it, it, it's it's there's no scheduled release date it's just being finished now okay. so it'll be out I, I reckon within the next six months but you know, there'll be a whole rollout campaign with it and media around it. Awesome. Uh, and the VR component's wonderful because you can literally, you know, stand next to me at <laughs> base camp or uh, uh, and put, you know, the, the VR glasses on and, and see what I saw firsthand. How far we've come. That's wild. That yep, is wild. Exactly. Um, you're talking about the future, how healthy is the scene today, do you think? The, the DJ scene, the electronic music scene? It's, it's it's hugely competitive. Yeah. There's uh, according to Beatport, there's twenty five thousand dance records released a month. Wow. Um, yeah. It, there's a you know there's obviously a lot of money in it. That's why it's so competitive. Uh, but it's in it's it's in a good place. I mean you 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 can't really deny it in that we're 
we've grown up now as a community. I mean, electronic music as it's known today, club culture as it's known today, mm-hmm. is 30 years old. So you're, you hear you hear electronic music on the radio, it's on movies, it's on commercials, it's on games. It's worldwide. It's here to stay and it's growing. That's amazing. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. This has been awesome. So he, during his story about you know climbing to base camp and then doing a concert and all the things that were involved, can you imagine like let alone like hiking to base camp is one hmm. thing, but then getting up there and setting up and then playing a show. Yeah, exactly. Like so, like I mean, obviously he and his people didn't carry all that equipment, but that equipment had to go up on top of your oxygen canisters, your food, your tents, your sleeping bags, everything else. You know, like. A, 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 a trek to base camp is not as intense as a, as, a, as a climb to the summit, obviously, but you're still lugging a ton of crap up there um, and back and out. So, you know, on top of all that, bringing up enough stuff to have a DJ set, you know, you're bringing up the stage and the turntables and the, and the music and the, the rigging and the lights. And I don't, I, mean, I don't know if they had lights, but cause I think it was during the day, but still like you're, it's, it's a whole setup that's on top of everything else that you need just to survive up there. Um, it's really intense. And that, I, I didn't realize that they had filmed it for a documentary. So I'm really looking forward to that. No, that should be good. And I can't wait to find out what he's doing in the future about it. Yeah, so if you go to his website, he does call it uh, so he it's soundtrack, um, and he's he calls it a series of concert adventures. And so going to Everest, I think was April of 2017. Um, so that's relatively recently that we went out there, and he said it took two years to plan that. So um, I love I love that idea that you go to these you know really famous or remote places you know you put on this spectacle of a show and you support charities by doing so you know and i think that's phenomenal i love that idea and i really am excited to see where he goes next and and what this spawns may i offer a suggestion paul if you're listening do it in where i live in new brunswick we have the largest tides in the world i don't know i don't know if you knew that jamie but they go out very far, and he could do it on the ocean floor. <gasps> when tides go out. Wouldn't that be neat? That would be really cool. <laughs> I think somebody's already done it, but it would be cool. If but he it, did it, too. It, it wasn't Paul <laughs> Oakenfold who did it, though. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. If that so there you go, Paul. Uh, you know royalties right here. That's awesome. Next idea. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming back every single week. If you don't come back, hit that subscribe button. You get notified every time. You can also find us on YouTube too, which is relatively new. We like we 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 started doing it a while ago, and then we realized my internet was awful. But now it's back, and I can upload in like two minutes. So YouTube videos are going to be up, <laughs> and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at the GBB Podcast. I'm Justin at 140 Justin C. I'm Jamie at the Roarbots, and we'll see you next time right here on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.